So we're going to start a new series today, as I mentioned before. But before I get to that, I want to tell you a little story. In uh, 2003, as um, I was preparing to, uh, I, I was quitting my job in the computer industry, and I was preparing to go to work uh, for three years in seminary, learning all the things that you have to do in seminary. Uh, and I was preparing to do that, and I decided I needed a new computer. I needed a laptop computer. And because I had worked in industry, I knew the computer I wanted. I wanted something lightweight. And it turned out that in 2003, the only computer that I could have afforded that was under five pounds, five pounds, can you remember those days? Um, five pounds, this, this was the light computer. The only computer I could find was the Apple iBook G3 800 megahertz, um, 128 meg of RAM. 30 meg hard drive. So I, I bought that. It cost me with, with the software that I purchased with it, it cost me about $2,000. And, you know, that's kind of shocking for us to think about today that just that recently computers cost that much. But, but I bought it. And the reason is because I had been watching Apple for a couple of years and I, I thought that maybe I could trust them. Five years earlier, I, there's no way you could have persuaded me to buy an Apple. But Steve Jobs had been back in the, at the company for about five years and they were starting to kind of, uh, you know, rise from their own ashes. And so, um, at the bottom, the, the stock had been about 76 uh, cents. Um, a share, but five years later it had gone up to about a, a, a dollar and thirty-four cents. And I remember thinking at the time, I don't remember the price tag, but I remember thinking it would be great if I put the same amount of money into Apple stock, right? That in addition to to putting that two thousand dollars into the Apple hardware and the software, if I had also bought two thousand dollars worth of Apple stock. Um, back in those days, this is before I uh, went to seminary, of course. You know, I had worked in the industry, I had some money. Um, and then it was before I made a small fortune in California real estate by starting with a large fortune in California real estate. Um, and uh, so I had the money. But, you know, Margo and I, we are not really kind of active investors. We have a 401k and, you know, we've got kind of the, the, the funds, but we don't do a lot of stocks. You know, it's like kind of. And so I ended up, you know, I kind of thought, well, you know. I should do that, but, you know, I'm not going to do that. So, you know, it kind of just kind of stuck with me about that level. I never pursued it. So that was back when the stock was $1.34. Well, as you can see today, the stock is 114 So it's about 100 times, 95 times uh, the price. And so if I'd put that $2,000 into Apple stock, if I had taken a risk and bought two lousy $1,000 worth of Apple stock, then I'd have $200,000 today in Apple stock. So assuming I'd continued to to let it ride. So, um, And since I didn't have enough uh, courage to do it the first time, I doubt if I would have let it ride for so long. But anyway, um, I, I, I tell you this because because that's a risk uh, uh, that I didn't take that I kind of regret. And my guess is you have some too. In fact, surveys have been done where they talk to people near the end of life and they say, you know, what what are the things that, that you treasure in your life as you as you reflect back on it? And people say, and then they say, what are your regrets? As you reflect back on your life, what are your regrets? And what always comes in the top couple of answers is, I wish that I had taken more risks. This is a very common phenomenon. People who are near the end of their life, they say, I wish I had taken more risks. My guess is even though we're not like right at death's doorstop, um, we have risks of our own that we wish we had taken. You know, maybe you wish that you had asked her out. Maybe you wish that you had called him back. Maybe you wish you had taken a risk 
and quit your job. Maybe you wish you had taken a risk and dropped out of school. Or, or maybe you wish you had taken the risk and stayed in that class instead of dropping it. Maybe you wish that you had taken a chance on that one employee, the one who ended up leaving the company and, and doing something amazing somewhere else. Maybe you wish you had taken a risk with him or her. Maybe there's a relationship where you wish that you had just leaned in a little harder. You know, you knew that you were vulnerable, you were exposed when you did that, but but you you think now, I think that that relationship could have been healed if I had just been willing to risk it. You know, most of us have risks that we did not take at some point in our life, and mostly those risks are things we regret as we reflect back on them. So we're going to be talking about risk for the next couple of weeks. This summer, um, I was uh, I, I, I talked about the the different things that uh, Carlo, our district superintendent, had identified as as the values that were identifiers of a healthy congregation. So we talked about going into the community, about welcoming people into our churches, about discipling members of churches, about service in and beyond our church, and about connecting uh, as individuals and as congregations to larger church bodies. We talked about all those things, and I said at the time, I wanted to hold off on talking about risk. Because for me, risk is such an important subject that I didn't want to just kind of take one week, look at risk, and move on. Risk is something I want to learn how to do better. Uh, Not just because there may come another apple someday that I want to get in on the ground floor of, but because risk is essential to a life of faith. I think risk is really, you know, that's what those surveys of, of people who are reflecting back in their life show is that risk is a part of just being a human, taking risks. But in particular, risk is essential to a life of faith. So I want to do my risk-taking better. And my guess is some of you want to as well. So we're going to be talking about risk for the next couple of weeks. This summer, I had a... Um, I had a... Uh, uh, I was at several conferences. I've talked about that some, but I heard this. I heard this person say at one of the conferences that um, that um, God is already doing in your life everything you expect Him to do, and that rocked me back in my seat. I thought to myself, "What if that's true? What if God is already doing everything in your life that you expect Him to do?" And the point that the speaker was making is we don't risk enough. And there's really two reasons why we don't. We as people of faith don't risk enough. And the first one is fear. We don't risk because of fear. Um, now, maybe we wouldn't say it's fear. Maybe we'd say, well, it's not that I, I'm afraid of risk. Maybe, okay, um, maybe it's not that, that I'm afraid of fear. Uh, uh, it's not that I'm afraid of risk. It's that I just... Avoid risk. You know, and, and to that I would say, all right, let's, let's run through a scenario. Suppose right now you call up your insurance company and you say, I'd like to cancel my insurance. How would you feel about driving home? You know, we have, we have figured out how to exist in a world full of, of dangers by figuring out ways to manage our risk. 
And because of that, we're not afraid of, we're not as afraid of risk. Um, I was reading this fascinating book. I'll show it to you. It's called Against the Odds. Um, uh, it's by Peter Bernstein, and it is the remarkable story of risk. He says in this book that people invented new branches of math. Probability and statistics were invented because people wanted to figure out how to assess risk. You know, if you're Queen Isabella and Columbus shows up and she and he says, "I want to, I want to take three ships. You know, I want you to fund a voyage to the New World." And you say, well, I don't even know how to assess that risk. And so you want, you want insurance in case the ships sail off the edge of the world. So people invented new ways of doing math to manage risk. And that's what we have today with our insurance um, uh, policies. We, we get insured against some particular risk, the risk of uh, our health going bad or getting into a car accident or whatever. So that's one way we manage risk. Another way we manage risk is we have safety margins. Have you ever gotten into an elevator and seen the sign on it? It says, it says, you know, we may be too heavy for this car. You know, I mean, it doesn't say that. It says maximum weight is this amount, right? Well, I was reading that whatever that number is, suppose it says 2,000 pounds on your elevator, and you're looking at it and you're counting the number of people, and some of them look pretty chubby, um, and you're thinking maybe we're kind of, you know, this could be a risk for us. What I was reading is that is that there is a safety factor built into elevators not just a factor of two, you know, it's not just that that 2,000 pound elevator will hold, um, two tons, 4,000 people. It will hold 11 tons. That there's a safety factor of 11 for elevator cables. So, we manage risk by, by putting together mathematical instruments and models and by, by having safety margins. But ultimately, we are afraid of risk. And so, we try to manage it. But from a perspective of faith, what we believe is that God is our loving Heavenly Father. And He doesn't want us to be afraid. That God doesn't want anything in the world to intimidate us or frighten us. Just last week, we looked at a passage, just one passage of Scripture, where Jesus said what He often says. He says, do not be afraid. In one passage of Scripture, Jesus says three times, do not be afraid, have no fear, have no fear. Because God is a loving Heavenly Father, and He doesn't want us to be afraid. So, the first reason I want to talk about fear is because, uh, risk is because we fear risk. But the second reason is, is even greater, and it's because of what I just said about God loving us. God wants us to believe in Him, to trust in Him, to rely on Him. And risk is the arena where faith is played out. Let me explain what I mean by that. You know, um, if you've ever prayed for a virtue, if you've ever prayed for, say, patience, because there's somebody who's very difficult in your life, what you may have found is that what seems to happen immediately is they become much more difficult. Um, or maybe suddenly they get a friend and they're both difficult together. Have you ever had that situation? Or maybe maybe what it was for you is you were praying to become a more generous person. And when you do... Katie barred the door because suddenly all kinds of needs present themselves. There's needy people, there's crises, there's, there's all kinds of opportunities for you to cultivate the, gener- the, the virtue of generosity. And that seems to be the way it always is. Whatever it is, whatever virtue you pray for, you pray for sobriety, you pray for uh, chastity, whatever it is, it seems as if God presents opportunities where you can succeed at that virtue. But also, by definition, Places where you can fail. 
And the reason for that isn't because God want to, wants to tempt you into doing the wrong thing. The reason is that God wants to give you a place where you can say, I've done everything I can do, God. And from here on, it's up to you. God wants us to give him some room where he can operate. So the same is true of faith. If we say to God, God, increase my faith, what we're going to find is God is going to give us all kinds of opportunities where we can take risks so that he can then fill that gap. So that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how how risk is the arena that God uses to test our faith. It's also the answer that God gives to people who are afraid, that he says he doesn't want us to be afraid. He wants us to learn how to lean on him and not be afraid. So um, that's what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks. And today I just want to finish up in, in the time I've got by talking about the faith part. We're going to spend the next several weeks talking about the daring part of faith. But what we're going to do today is we're just going to wrap up by talking about faith. So um, the 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 place I'd like to start is in what's called the Faith Hall of Fame. In the book of um, Hebrews, there is a chapter, chapter 11, where the writer says, this is what faith is. And specifically, he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What does he mean by that? Here's what he means. Let's suppose you'd like to go to Hawaii. You heard that there's a couple in our church that's going to Hawaii for their anniversary, and you say, boy, I'd like to go to Hawaii. In fact, I'd like to go to Hawaii in January when it's miserable outside. I'd love to go to Hawaii. That would be great. Now, at this point, that is a passing fancy. That's that's an idle daydream. That's a wish. But when you get out your credit card and you book the travel, then it becomes a hope because it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. You know, you've put it in your calendar. You've paid the bill. You're going to Hawaii. That is your hope, but it is not yet realized. And faith is the confidence you have that it will happen. Now, if the the travel you booked was on an airline that's kind of sketchy, it's going into receivership or something like that, maybe you don't have good grounds for faith. Maybe you should have bought the refundable ticket. Maybe if Hawaii is entering a volcano season, maybe you might want to get the refundable ticket. If your faith is based on things in this world, then there's reasons why you may want to hedge your bets. But if your faith is based on God's faithfulness, that God is who he says he is and he will keep all the promises that he makes, then you have the perfect ground for your faith. And whatever it is you're hoping for, you can be confident that you will receive. So that's what the writer is saying. Faith is that assurance of the thing that you're hoping for, that hope that you have, the conviction of things not seen. So that's the language of faith and hope, and we're going to use it all through the next couple of weeks. But that is that is what we mean when we talk about faith. And it is that gap between the hope we have and our present reality. That is faith. And that is the place where God loves to operate. So what I want to do is I want to look at this passage of Scripture uh, where where uh, it is illustrated for us by um, a Roman centurion. So if you've got your scriptures, if you could turn to Matthew uh, chapter 8, this appears. This story appears in two places in Scripture. It's also in Luke chapter 7. Um, so uh, you can look at it there or here. But in Matthew 8, 
uh, we read that Jesus entered into Capernaum. Jesus has been elsewhere. Been, he's uh, just actually finished up with the uh, Sermon on the Mount on, in chapters 5 through 7. But now he's returning to Capernaum, which was kind of his home base of operations. And as he comes into town, it says that a centurion came to him, appealing to him. So this centurion is a Roman officer. Uh, the, the word centurion means a hundred, like century. So he's in charge of a hundred men, or at least a hundred men. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, in terrible distress. And Jesus says to him, I will come. You know what? I'm, I'm so sorry. I've, doesn't do any good to have an outline if you don't follow it. So let me give you the answers and we'll, we'll get where we're at here. So, so hope is what God still needs to deliver. Okay. And confidence is that God will do it. That's faith. So hope is what God still needs to deliver and confidence that God will do it is faith. And that reminds me, I didn't do step two. So, uh, it may seem like that's kind of something leaning on God. You know, I'm kind of prevailing on God to do something he doesn't want to do. The writer of the, the passage that we, we looked at, the writer of Hebrews 11, tells us that this is the only thing that will please God. That faith is the only way to please God. So faith actually pleases God. It doesn't offend Him when we lean on Him. It actually pleases Him. So that brings us to the faith uh, of a centurion. So, all right. I'm working on it. So, so uh, the faith of a centurion. So he says to him, I will come and cure him. Jesus says, Sure, I'll come in and cure him. And the centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. What he means by worthy, this is not like, uh, you're God and I'm a sinner, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so unworthy. He's simply saying, look, I'm a Gentile, you're a Jew, Jews don't associate with Gentiles. It would actually cause you grief, you would become ritually unclean, you couldn't do the things you need to do as a Jew if you associate with a Gentile. So I'm not asking for you to do that. I'm not asking for you to do that. All I'm asking for you to do is to heal my servant. And then he says something that blows Jesus' mind. He says, Lord, I am a man under authority. I'm just like you, Jesus. I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another one, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. He says, I understand how this works. There's a lot of things I don't understand about the Jewish religion, Jesus. I've been here in Palestine for a while. There's all kinds of things I don't understand. But I've been watching you. And I don't have you completely figured out, Jesus. But I figured one thing out. You are a man under authority. And you can say things and they happen. He says, when I tell my soldier, you go do that. I don't have to follow him around to see if he does. I don't have to check up on him because I know it better happen. And if it doesn't happen, he's going to suffer. He says, you're like that. That when you say something, you don't have to go check up on it. You don't have to be present. You don't have to see it happen to know it's going to happen. He says, I've figured you out. I've been watching. I've heard the stories about you, Jesus. And I figured something out. When you say something... The universe wraps itself sideways to do what you told it. So all you've got to do, Jesus, is say the word and my servant is going to be healed. And that blows Jesus away. It blows his mind. It says, when Jesus heard him, he was amazed. This word amazed appears only in two places in the Bible. Three places. 
This story and the parallel story in Luke 7. And then one other place. Jesus is amazed by this. He says, he says, truly I tell you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. No one in Israel understands that if you give me a place to work, I will work there. So Jesus is amazed but that this man understands that faith requires that we give God a place to work. We have to risk that God won't work in order for God to have a place to work. So that amazes Jesus. But there's one other place where Jesus is amazed. And that's when he's in Nazareth. The story's in Mark 6. Jesus is in Nazareth, and it says he could do no miracles there. People gave him no place to work. There was no place he could do miracles. It says he healed only a few people. He couldn't do miracles there because of their unbelief. So there's two things that amaze Jesus. Faith and lack of faith. That these are the things that surprise Jesus. They shock Jesus. They startle him. So the question for us is, how are we going to amaze Jesus? Let me, let me close with two observations and one application. First observation is this. The Roman knew all kinds of reasons why Jesus might say no, right? He was a Roman. He was a member of an occupying army that oppressed the Jews in Palestine. He knew all kinds of reasons. He was, he was, uh, he, he was a Roman. He was a Gentile. He knew nothing of the things of God. He didn't, he didn't study the Bible. He didn't know any of that stuff. He knew all kinds of reasons why Jesus might say no. But the centurion didn't say no for Jesus. You know, sometimes I think we do. We kind of say, well, I'm not going to take that to God. That's, that's a dumb thing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take that to God. It matters to me, but it won't matter to God. The centurion did not say no for God. So don't say no for God. The other thing is the centurion had all kinds of reasons to suspect that God might not do what he wanted. There are valid theological objections to a centurion getting any miracles performed at all. He, he is a Gentile. Any ideas he's got about God are going to be wrong. Okay, Whatever he may understand about God, he's going to be thinking that here in this area there's a local God and his name is Yahweh or whatever it is, um, that there's this local God and he's in charge in this area, but elsewhere there's you know Zeus and, and Jupiter and Mars and all the others, that different gods are in different areas. And when I'm here, sure, I might offer a sacrifice. He's got wrong ideas about God. His understanding of God is completely disconnected from everything that Jesus taught about God. He never makes any, any offer to become a disciple. He doesn't say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to devote my life to learning how to become like you. He simply says, Jesus, I've got a servant who is sick. Can you help him? So... What the centurion does right is he says, there, there may be theological objections. There may be practical objections. Jesus hasn't seen the patient yet. How does he know if it's safe? But what the centurion does is he says, those aren't my problems. Those are God's problems. So the theological objections, practical considerations, those are God's problems. And we should make sure that we don't decide we know exactly what problems God is capable of solving. So... Those are the two, applica- two observations. Let me close with an application. 
what do you want to do to amaze Jesus? Because Scripture says there's two ways we can amaze Jesus. We can amaze him with our faith, or we can amaze him with our unbelief. Let me put it a different way. Where in your life are you leaving room for God to do miracles? What in your life can only be explained by the gracious work of a loving God? You know, I think a lot of us, we don't see so much evidence of God in our life. You know, there was that time, that one thing, but you know, not lately, no, not really. You know, I'm kind of hanging on, I'm going to church, but I don't see a lot of evidence of God in my life. Well, maybe that's because we're not taking risks. We're not leaving a gap where we can't explain it based on the things that we bring to the table because of our education, our money, our own resources. We're not leaving a place where there's no other explanation for what happened except the gracious work of a loving God. So let me ask you to think about your own life. Where are you taking risks? Where are you saying, this won't happen except for God? You know, I don't mean crossing the Red Sea. Okay, I don't mean, you know, Corey Tinboom taking risks, sheltering Jews from the Holocaust. But maybe you get there by taking little risks. So think about your life. Where are you leaving room for God to work? And then for us as a congregation, the, the question's the same. Where are we as a congregation taking risks? Where are we leaving places for God to be at work in our life as his people? You know, I, I, I told you that this was Carlo's number four value in his list, uh, you know, uh, go, I have to stop, go, welcome, um, disciple, risk, number four in his risk. There's a church where this is their number one value. It's a church I, I like. Um, if you've ever used the uh, version Bible online or on your uh, device, um, your mobile device, they invented it. And they've got this this slogan. It's their number one value, Life life.church. They say, we are faith-filled, oh, here it is, we are faith-filled, bet-the-farm risk-takers. We will never insult God with small thinking and safe living. Think about that. How would you like to be that person? How would you like a church family where that was the value we upheld and we encouraged you instead of kind of raising our eyebrows and saying, are you sure about that? Wouldn't that be great to be part of a community where people were encouraging you and where collectively we were all trying to be faith-filled, bet-the-farm risk-takers? to leave lots of room in our lives for God to do something that only his working could explain. Let me invite you this week. Think of something. Think of something where you say, you know, I can't figure out a way to make that happen. That may be exactly where God wants you to let him act. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We know you're a loving God who doesn't want us to be afraid of anything. And sometimes we are. And sometimes people who fail to take the risks that they should regret them later. So, Lord, first of all, we pray that you would give us courage to take risks. But second of all, Lord, we pray you'd give us eyes of faith that we could see the places in our lives as a congregation and as individuals where we need to open up some space where we need to say this cannot happen except by your grace to give you a place to work. So as we see your hand in our lives, 
we can trust you more and more day by day. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.